You know, when I was uh, playing and then coaching basketball, our teams at times faced incredibly difficult opponents. Um, we, we faced high school teams that would go on to win state championships. We, uh, when I was in college, faced a couple of teams that went on to win national championships at our little small college levels. One time in high school, as a senior in high school, we played a team that had one, a future NBA player on it, two future NFL players, one other Division I college basketball player, and various other college athletes on the same team. We failed in our efforts to win that game that day. But in all of my years of playing and coaching basketball, it took me a long time to learn this, but my toughest opponent was not ever out there on the court. My toughest opponent was right in here. My toughest opponent was my anger, um, my priorities. Um, you know, when my emotional well-being was based on what 17-year-olds do with a ball. You know, it's really a crazy thing to build a life around. Um, it took me a long time to figure out my greatest opponent is, was right in here, usually. I mean, I have an enemy, don't get me wrong. I know about him too. I don't think I'm alone in that, and I don't think it applies only to sports. The writer uh, in Proverbs says this, he who is slow to anger is really mightier than the mighty. The one who can rule over his own spirit really has more power than somebody who can capture a fortified city. But man, is it hard to control our temper, our anger. Isn't it really easy to be convinced that my emotions and my responses really are controlled by what someone else does? Where do you get the strength to have this kind of strength. Well, back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David had his most famous battle against a giant, a very powerful opponent, Goliath. Well, this morning we're going to read really the first of three stories where David is going to face an even more difficult team of opponents than the giant. He is going to face off against his own anger, his desire for vengeance, temptation. And David is going to win. He's going to have a close call. He's going to need some help in one of these stories that we, that we will get to. But he's going to win. And I want you to know, mainly he's going to win because David realizes what his real opponent actually is. And he's going to discern what real victory really looks like. 
Because if we don't get that far, all of the stories in, that we read in the Scripture are applicable. But I'm not sure we can find more applicable ones than what we're going to be in over the next few weeks. Uh, this is a, it's a long section. We're going to read the whole chapter, so I think we'll go chunk by chunk through it. So if you have your Bible, uh, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. And let's read the first three and a half verses first. So 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. Uh, the rocks of the wild goats are, are there by the cedars of the uh, chubby groundhogs. And if you get to the hedges of the lazy jackrabbits, you've gone too far. You've got to turn around and go back. Uh, sorry. Um, in front of the rocks of the wild goats. Verse 3, he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of that cave. The men of David said to him, behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. So in the last few chapters we've read in this book, we took a break for Easter, but what just came before, David has amassed some followers that will be called his mighty men. He's got a, something of a small little ragtag army, and it is constantly being pursued by King Saul and a much larger army. And Saul will stop at nothing to see David Killed. Saul's been trying to kill David for seven chapters over the last, it's just been this incessant pursuit. The last thing we just read, Saul's men almost surrounded David and his men. And just in the nick of time, King Saul got word, hey, the Philistines are back home attacking cities. So Saul had to call off his pursuit of David and run back home. We, we go one more verse in the book. We're not even told what happened with the Philistines and how it went. All we're told was the pursuit is back on. It's this picture of Saul is never going to stop chasing David. But in verse 3, David is presented with what looks like an incredibly fortunate opportunity. Um, nature calls, shall we say, on King Saul and he looks around for a place with some privacy where he can use the litter box, okay? And he just happens to pick the exact, he knew he was in the right area where David was. He'd been told, so he's in the right area. He goes in this cave and David and his men are in the recesses of that cave. To David's men, it's like this is the moment we've been waiting for. Like this is a divinely offered gift. They mention what looks like a prophecy. They say, hey, God told you, behold, someday I'm going gonna, 
I'm going to give your enemy into your hand and you can do whatever you want with them. That prophecy is not in the Bible anywhere. We don't know if that's a prophecy. It really could be just David's men saying, hey, we know God's providence when we see it. We know, David, you're going to be king. We know you and Saul can't both be king at the same time. We also know that guy's going to stop at nothing to see you killed. So, obviously, God has given you your big chance. You can get rid of our problem of being killed by this guy, and you can get yourself to be king all at once. Often in life, it is difficult to tell the difference between a good opportunity and a temptation. You ever notice that? I might be presented an opportunity to go make lots and lots more money. Would that be a good opportunity for me? Or would that be a temptation? Like, well, for me personally, that would probably be a temptation. Right? But for any of us, we don't know what that money is going to do to us. Right? Um, uh, maybe I've been, I've been you know, lonely, I don't fit in, and suddenly there's this, this group of people that I, can be new friends. Is that a great opportunity? Will that be a temptation? There's this new person, I, I, you know, I, I kind of want to date, not me, not me. I kind of want to, to date, and there's this person that suddenly kind of likes the way I look and thinks I'm so funny. Is that a great opportunity, or will that be a temptation? This is what David is presented with here. It is true, David's going to be king. It's true, David and Saul can't be king at the same time. It is also reasonable to think if David kills Saul in this cave, David will just become king more quickly. But none of those things mean God wants David to kill Saul. One, one of the commentaries I read in studying this passage equated what David is presented with here with the temptation of David's most famous descendant, Jesus you know the story of David being tempted by Satan in the wilderness? In one sense, in one of those temptations, all Satan was tempting, all Satan was offering was just a way for Jesus to become the king he had promised to be a little quicker. Opportunity or temptation? So that's what has presented itself to David. King Saul is right there alone defenseless, and all of David's men are saying, this is obviously a sign from God. You're supposed to finish him off right now and become king. Let's move on. Second part of verse 4, we read this, and David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to, to my Lord Saul, my boss, the Lord's anointed. I shouldn't stretch out my hand against him because he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. 
And Saul arose and left the cave and went on his way. So, rather than killing this man, Saul, who has tried to kill David in so many different ways, we're told in the last part of verse 4 that David sneaks up and, and cuts a chunk off of Saul's robe. Now, just so it doesn't distract us here, how is this even possible? Could David be, was he, I mean, did he just go full commando here? Was he that sneaky? Well, this is a really good example of how Hebrew narrative, so when stories are told in ancient Hebrew, how it uses details. Hebrew is very not detailed. It usually only tells us enough details to get the story told. We want more details. How did David pull this off? So when, when Hebrew gives us an unusual detail, what should, what, what should go off in our head is, what is that detail doing here when we don't usually get details? I don't know if you've paid attention, but what's the unusual detail in this story? Is there something we get told in this story that usually we're not told about in the Bible? Yes. I mean, it's safe to assume people in biblical times used the restroom which is our euphemism for that. But we're never told about it, at least not very often. But we are here. Why? By the way, the Hebrew euphemism, just because it's so colorful, this adds nothing to the sermon. But the Hebrew says that Saul went in the cave to cover his feet. And so if you think about it anyway, that's what it, that's what it says. I'm just reading the Bible to you, that's all. Uh, where were we? Uh, Um, so here's what that detail is doing here. It does tell us why Saul went in the cave, but the author could have just said Saul went in the cave, you know, for a private moment. Here's what the original audience knows automatically because they had uh, covered their own feet a time or two. And they also wore what we would call robes, tunics, outfits like that. And so here's what they know without having to be told if Saul went in there for that purpose, there's no way he keeps the royal robe on him while he's doing that. You would want to, I mean, if the unthinkable happens while he's doing that job, what's he supposed to do? Drop it off at the cleaner there by the rocks of the wild goats, right? So no, he has to take off his very special royal robes and he would have folded that up, found some rock or something to put that safely out of harm's way. So However, this went down, David didn't have to sneak up on Saul's person. Um, and what were the winds doing in that cave? Um, I don't know, but Saul's men hope it's blowing out. I'm just saying. I hope it's, uh, um. So that's how David does this, I suppose. But why? By slicing off a portion of not just any garment, the robe, the kingly vestments. David's sending a message. Um, do you remember early in this, earlier in this story when Samuel was still alive, the old prophet, where Samuel told Saul God had rejected him and, and, and Saul grabbed a hold of Samuel and Samuel pulled away and Saul's ro or Samuel's robe was torn and Samuel told Saul, that's what's going to happen to the, your kingdom. It's going to be torn from you. 
Well, now someone has ripped off part of the kingly robe. This is like David sending a message. I'm, your time is limited. For us, symbolically, it would make more sense like if he cut his crown in half or something. That's what he does. And that's why David has an attack of the conscience after this. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. We're told that David's heart or his conscience is pained. It's, it's struck, um, which really doesn't make any sense. Because what did David's men want him to do? Kill Saul. And he, would, he showed restraint. He didn't kill Saul. So why would his conscience bother him when he showed restraint? Well, here's why. Because he has just demonstrated, I'm going to rip the kingdom away from you. And then he tells his men, that's not for me to decide. That's God's guy for right now. Whether Saul knows it or not, he is the Lord's anointed. God chose him to be king and God can unchoose him, not me. And so that's why David's conscience is bothered here. But the reason he even has a heart, I mean, think about this. How long is the list of stuff that King Saul has done to David? It's pretty long. I mean, Saul has tried to murder David now on who knows how many occasions. He's turned a bunch of the nation against David. He's safe nowhere. He has forced David's entire family into exile. We're going we're gonna to learn in, um, I think, one more week. But we're going to learn soon. Saul has given his daughter, Michael, who is David's wife, Saul has given her to another man. So how can David cut an edge off that guy's robe and go, oh, I should not have done that to him. You know how? Because David doesn't just keep Saul's list in the forefront of his mind all the time. What our hearts want to do is focus on what that person did and how it made me feel. And if I never stop thinking about that, that will control my emotions. That will control my actions. David's not controlled that way. David doesn't pursue after his enemy, enemies. David pursues after the heart of God. David just focuses on keeping his heart soft before God and he draws the motivation for his behaviors from what God says is best. By the way, also from your running Hebrew lesson here, where this says David persuaded his men, that doesn't do the Hebrew justice. It says something literally like David tore his men apart with these words. Now that's persuasion. There's this weird thing here where David's angrier at his men than he is at Saul. Does that make any sense? Again, why? Because his men become the voice of his temptation. His yacht two friends, you know what you ought to do? You ought to get in there. And he's like, no. 
that's God's guy over there. I don't have the right to do that. And so he's angry at the voices that tell him to do what God would not want him to do. We're ready to move on. Verse 8. What follows this Saul's near miss is it's going to be David's longest speech recorded in the Bible. And Dr. Robert Bergen and his uh, really good commentary on 1 Samuel, he calls what we're about to read perhaps the most passionate and eloquent plea for reconciliation between persons recorded in all of ancient literature. So David not only doesn't kill Saul, he goes out there to try and reconcile with him. It goes down like this, beginning in verse 8. Now, afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul turned around and looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you. But my eye had pity on you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 11, David still speaking, Now, my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand, For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, know and perceive, understand there's no evil or rebellion in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. Verse 13. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog, a single flea? The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So David runs outside of that cave behind the still very alone and very vulnerable Saul. And he assumes a position of humility, uh, subservience. He kneels down, his face is on the ground as he calls out to Saul. And notice the tone in the way David confronts Saul. This is a confrontation, but it's very non-accusatory. There is a way to confront someone else's wrong when really my purpose is I cannot wait to get this off my chest. There is a way to confront that really is designed to make me feel better about what I am going to say to that person. Then there's a way to confront that it actually pursues the repentance of the other person. And they're not the same thing. David goes out there. He's very non-accusatory. He says, check this out. Of course, he calls him my Lord the King. 
And David says, why do you listen to these people who are telling you that I'm trying to hurt you? If you've been reading this story, how many people have been telling King Saul that David is trying to kill him? Exactly none people. David knows this. Saul is the one trying to convince everyone else that David's trying to kill him. But David leaves, leaves room in there. He's like, hey, you're probably just getting bad advice. Uh, later, David says, you know, I, it's out of the wicked that comes forth wickedness. And that's why I'm not against you because I'm, I'm just guarding my heart. I'm not going to act wickedly toward you. There's no mystery whom David believes to be the wicked person in this conversation. But he keeps himself from saying, you are wicked. Stop with all your wickedness and maybe we can. He just says, I want you to know I'm not going to kill you. Look at the robe. I, sh I shouldn't even have done that. But if I was going to kill you, I'd have done it already. There's also none. You know what? You better change some things or next time, bucko, you won't be so lucky. There's none of that. And inside of this, there's way more going on than David showing great restraint, though he does. But there's way more than David just having better self-control than most of us. David... David shows his, like his motivations, how he gets to be where he's at. Uh, for, just so it doesn't confuse us, this whole thing, the dead dog and single flea. David keeps mentioning the judgment of God. Did you notice that in this speech? Over and over and over. That's the heart of David's motivation is the judgment of God. He keeps saying, I'm not going to harm you. Why? Because the judgment of God. I, I know someday you are going to stand before the Lord and you're going to know what a waste of time this was. You are wasting your time chasing me just as surely as if you were chasing a dog that's already dead or trying to find one little measly flea in the whole kingdom. Why? Because of the judgment. Because of the judgment. God's going to judge this. The judgment's coming, Saul. And here's why that's important. It's important for Saul, but it's also important for David. Here's why. It's important for David because David knows I don't have to seek vengeance on you. Why? Because God's going to judge. Zero went on just three verses here from that speech. David tells Saul, there were some of the guys with me, they were all telling me to kill you, Saul, but I had pity on you and I said, I am not going to extend my hand against my Lord. Why? Because he is God's guy. He is God's to deal with. He doesn't just keep in the forefront of his mind the list of the wrongs with which Saul has wronged him and let that be his motivation. His motivation is let the things that are God's, God take care of. I'm responsible for me. And then to help him be responsible for him, 12 and 15, here's the judgment. May the Lord judge between the two of us. 
If I need to be vindicated, may the Lord vindicate me over you, but my hand's not going to be against you. May the Lord be our judge and arbiter, another word for judge. May he see, may he judge, may he arbitrate my case. May he deliver me from your hands. What's David's motivation? How does David get to be the way David is? Because he's extremely confident in the reality of the judgment of God. And here's what that does. First, for him, it's like, man, God's not going to miss anything I do. Like, I could vindicate myself, but someday I'm going to stand before God. And it's going to be really, I might be able to convince everyone else what I'm doing was justified, was okay, I couldn't help it, listen to all the terrible things Saul did, but that ain't going to, that ain't going to fly at all when I stand before a holy God. So I want to remember, I'm going to, God's not going to miss anything. But there's something else here too. This is a plea for reconciliation. He wants Saul to realize judgment is coming, buddy. Like, Saul, someday you are going to stand before God. How is this going to go for you? What's amazing is not merely that David is able to keep his own heart in check. Okay, God is going to judge me. I want to make sure God is okay with me. The man who's been trying to murder him for seven chapters, David desires his repentance. Now that's admirable. Because if we're honest, when we get deep into some sort of real conflict, like the best we can hope for usually is we want to watch our behavior. But do we really desire the repentance of someone else? Or do we just continually try to convince ourselves, they haven't, they won't, they'll never. Do you see what this passage does to our ammunition when we get like that? Like, you know, how we are. <laughs> oh, but Pastor Matt, let me give you the list again of how terrible they are. All right, compare it to what David's got against Saul. It's, he's, he is the man after God's own heart. And this is a great example. Now, David doesn't pick up and just go back to work for Saul. He doesn't leave here with him. This is a confrontation that requires repentance. And David would have to see repentance, but he wants to. The controlling factor, or factors maybe, um, in David's life. He, again, he, he refuses to spend his time brooding on Saul's wrongs because David understands his wrongs do not excuse my wrongs. Like the easiest thing in the world is just keep that list in front of my head, in front of my mind, so that, you know, I can sneak these old jabs in like this as long as I don't get to this level of bad. Right? This person that I can't stand. As long as my behavior doesn't get this bad, I'll compare favorably. I'll be all right. There's none of that in David. 
Well, until next week. (laughs) David doesn't feel like, how easy is it to just feel like, I can't let them get away with this. Anybody? I can't just let them get away with this. Do you see what David's motivation is? It's like, they're not going to, Saul's not going to get away with this. That's what I'm telling Saul. Here's what Jesus would say about it. There's nothing that's hidden that's going to remain hidden. There's nothing that is secret that's not going to come to light. When? When? When you put an ad in the paper and out everyone on there? No. When we stand before the Lord, Jesus says, trust me, there's, I haven't missed anything. That's a powerful motivator for us as we walk through conflict. Don't think, I shouldn't think, don't think you're sneaky, Maxwell. Right? Don't think this isn't being seen. That's why Saul says, excuse me, wrong. He used to be Saul. Paul says in Romans 12, never take your own revenge, beloved. But then look what he says. Leave room for the wrath of God. It's a real thing. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. That's a promise, says the Lord. And Paul continues, do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Isn't that what David did outside that cave? David is controlled by the judgment of God. Seems like a strange thing to say, but it's true. Because he's so sure God's judgment's coming and it will be absolutely perfect. The only thing I could do in being in a hurry to get there is mess it up. The end of this passage is Saul's response. So after David speaks, we read what is King Saul's longest speech recorded in the Bible. And he's obviously touched and moved by what David has said and and not done. Verse 16, when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. That just means he cried hard. He said to David, you are more righteous than I am. For you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that that you have done good to me. That the Lord delivered me into your hand and yet you did not kill me. Verse 19. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? Who does this? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul, And Saul went to his home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul is touched by what David says. He even calls him David, which sounds like no duh. What was he going to call him? Steve? It's not his name. But 
I didn't really check this. I read back through. I think this is the first time Saul has called him David. He always calls him son of Jesse and, and stuff like this. He calls him his son. He weeps. He says, you're such a good person. That's why I hate you. Uh, right? You're, you are a better person than I, than I am. He admits, I know you're going to be king and the nation's going to be better for it. He says, I just can't believe you didn't kill me. I sure would have killed you. I think anybody would have killed me. And then Saul says way more than he even knows. Saul's just saying this. He says, may the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. It's like Saul says, man, what you did was so awesome. The Lord should reward you for that or something. And David's got to be thinking, yeah, that's what I'm depending on. The reason I didn't kill you is because that's absolutely true. I'm going to stand before him one day. He won't have missed any of this. And the things I did in this life, which glorified him, even if everyone else thinks they're nuts, he will reward those things. Saul makes David promise, hey, swear to me, when you get to be king, you won't kill my whole family because that's what, that's what happened in regime change back then. David's already made that promise. He promised Jonathan, Saul's son. But I would submit to you, David doesn't need to make that promise. All David has to do is keep being David. Keep pursuing God's heart. Keep being motivated by God is going to make all this stuff right in the end. My job is to pursue him, do what he says is best. Doing right by other people gets thrown in for free if we could just get there. We think if I do right by other people, then God will be okay with my heart. We got it backwards. We should have a heart that pursues God and doing right by other people will just flow naturally out of that. That's our story. It's a great one. You just thought the toilet humor was the best part, right? Here's what, here's what we... This, this passage asks us some questions, though. Here's the questions I think this passage asks us. Do you believe that God's judgment is coming for every single person and it will be perfect? you believe that? If your answer to that is yes, then why? And I ask this to myself, why do I think I can improve upon that? Right? Do you believe for the believer, I will be rewarded for anything that I wait upon him for that glorifies him? Yeah. You believe I will suffer some sort of loss or regret if I take his wrath, which is his job in my hand and try to make, yes. Do you believe if, if you're in a conflict with a believer, do you ever make the mistake of saying, yeah, but their punishment went on Jesus and I don't think he or she should get off that easy. Ever feel like that? You know what? You're right. They shouldn't get off that easy. That's what grace is. But who are you and who am I 
when we decide what he suffered for their sin was not enough. It's enough for God the Father, but it ain't enough for me. Do you believe God's judgment is coming and it will be perfect, that God won't miss anything? If so, whom would I rather have vindicate me for the wrongs done to me? Me or God? Who do I think will do a better job? If you say you, we need to talk. How about this from the end of this? From the end of this where I said, David did not need to make that promise. He just needed to keep being David. Can people assume that I will be motivated by what God says is best? It's a convicting question. You know how I, you know, I fix that if I have my doubts there? Do, do people have to worry that my motivations might be somewhat lower? You know how to fix that? Stop worrying about what other people think and think on the judgment of God. And I want you to know, this is an encouraging message. And you might be thinking, well, you better hurry up with the encouragement there, Pastor, because I'm not feeling it right about now. But it is. Like, you ever thought how, like, if you've ever wanted to, like, be better, I want to be more like David. I want to be more like Jesus. Right? I, I want to put this into action. There's some real practical things in this passage. You know what we have to do? Focus on the judgment of God. We need to think more on the sure, perfect, coming judgment of God. When I'm in a conflict, when someone else wrongs me, right? Instead of keeping that list of their wrongs in the forefront of my mind all the time because I know that will give me fuel to try and get what I want. Here's what, I should, be, here's what should be in the front of my mind. God's going to judge this. God's going to judge this. God's going to see this. Do you see this, Lord? You know the story of King Hezekiah? He got that one letter that one time and he ran in the sanctuary and he threw it down. I said, God, do you see this? You know what God said? Yep. Thanks for coming in. God's going to see this. He saw, if there's something that needs to be vindicated, he's got that. He didn't miss it. But there's something difficult I can do that looks like his son. He won't miss that either. Like David, we, may we be more and more controlled by the judgment of God. If we can get there, I think we'll be shocked at how the rest of our behaviors will just kind of fall into place. Let's pray. Father, um, man, sometimes it seems so simple, but our opponent is often within us. Our pride our anger, our desire for vengeance. Um, so God, uh, I just pray even this next week, uh, you would remind us about your perfect judgment. There is nothing hidden that's not going to be made known. There's nothing secret that's not going to come to light. 
And you are, you're going to vindicate every wrong. You're going to reward every right. You're going to do it perfectly and we can't possibly improve. Help us to wait on you and your perfect judgment. Control our hearts and our behaviors there. And we pray all that in the name of your precious son who allowed you to vindicate our sin on him that we might live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.